They say the older one gets, the less one likes change. And I'm about to do Plan B with Rebecca Davis on Zoom. This is the first time I've done Rebecca Davis on Zoom. She's either been in the studio those halcyon days, when will they return, or on the old-fashioned phone line. But now it's on Zoom. Hello, Rebecca, on Zoom. John, you know what is another sign of age? What's that? Um, declining declining memory, because we did it on Zoom last week, and you and I had a lengthy conversation about leapfrogging, or rather leap-stumbling, stumble-frogging into the 21st century. Yeah, but I hope that nobody else would remember that, because, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Good cover. Good cover. I wanted to. I wanted to be able to make the point again. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of. I feel a bit sorry for the ANC that so few businesses wanted to pay large sums of money to sit at the tables of the gala dinner, which the ANC has done for a while now. But at the same time, it did suggest that business is perhaps too late starting to realise that to pay one million rand to sit at the same table as Cyril Ramaphosa is really not a good optic. And maybe not a good return on investment, unlike in previous administrations. Yeah. This, it, it seems to me, John, on the basis of the uh, very interesting, actually, counter-corruption summit that, was happen that happened this week at the Pavica Stellenbosch Academy, that there's this increasing wrangling between business and government over whose fault corruption is. And it's kind of this deadening debate, really. The representatives of big business often say, you know, it's government's responsibility to get serious about corruption. Without that, we'll never see any solid economic growth and investment. And the response from authorities, at least from the likes of, you know, the justice minister, the NPA, etc., tends to be, well, who do you think is doing the bribing when it comes to corruption? You know, Andrea Johnson, who's the head of the investigating directorate, pointed out at this summit that the banks, for instance, have a responsibility to report suspicious transactions. And as is now well established, they simply did not take up that responsibility during state capture. And we know from the work of investigative journalists and so forth that there were countless really dodgy transactions that should have been flagged. And as a result of not being flagged, that money has, you know, in many cases, fled the country, been laundered in sophisticated international networks and so forth. So it becomes this kind of back and forth. I have some sympathy, though, for the perspective of the Black Management Forum, who said at the event that ultimately government sets what they call the moral tone for the company. So they said, can you imagine Bain, for instance, the management consultants, going into a country like Australia or China or wherever and just setting out to capture the tax collector, as happened in South Africa. The thought is pretty much unthinkable. And what that suggests is that in those countries, there is this kind of institutional climate with a tone set by government and authorities. That means that such attempts at corruption are in vain, would be in vain or, you know, completely unwelcome. And they say it's government's responsibility to make that clear by setting the regulatory framework, by making the relevant laws and the legislation. But, I mean, the point does remain, John, that we often do forget that corruption is a two-way process. I mean, it, it, it really very much does take two to tango. And as many middle-class people, you know, we're all often, many of us, are guilty of perhaps being willing to bribe a traffic cop or 
not being horrified at the thought of sneaking someone a little bit of money to get to the front of the queue in home affairs. I mean, that is corruption too. This this all doesn't stop and end with the government. They are willing participants all over society, and that's a bit of an issue. But on the same note of corruption, John, there's also this perception that is widespread that black businessmen and black government officials are being prosecuted at a much more speedy and energized rate than white people responsible for corruption. And that was expressed explicitly this week in an op-ed by Cabinet Minister Lindiwe Sisulu, who said that the reason the Steinhoff bosses, for instance, have evaded arrest, despite the fact that Steinhoff's local operations collapsed almost five years ago, is because of their pigmentation. So Sisulu was saying they haven't been arrested because they're white. Andrea Johnson, again, the head of the investigating directorate, this week says, no, she understands this perception is out there. But the problem is actually much wider and in some ways more concerning. The problem is simply that South Africa has a critical skills shortage when it comes to criminal investigators, forensic investigators and financial prosecutors. And she said the issue is, too, that all the most important crime-fighting units, so the the Hawks, the NPA, the investigating directorate, they are all relying on the same tiny pool of people in South Africa who do have the relevant skills to build cases in these complex financial fraud matters. So if one of them is busy dealing with, you know, the Guptas, then no one's working on Steinhoff because their skills aren't available. So Andrea's point, which I think is a very good one, is that universities should be listening to the NPA, should be listening to law enforcement when law enforcement keeps saying, we have a real shortage of these skills. And we're saying, can we be producing students who are better equipped to take up these challenges? Because otherwise, it's hard to know what to do. These people are getting older and older, the people with the relevant experience, and there just isn't fresh blood coming in. And the result will be that these complex crimes do go unprosecuted. Many of us have doubts about whether the Gupta's case is even going to end in a successful prosecution here, however open and shut it might seem to us. And it's not open and shut. The reporting might give the impression that it is, but these matters are extraordinarily complex. And unless we build up those talent bases, we're going to have problems all down the line. And uh, I spoke about this yesterday afternoon with uh, Professor Rachel Jukes. Um, we're not sure that the um, ANC Women League's, Women's League's part proposal to consider chemical castration for convicted rapists will make it to a discussion paper at the ANC's policy conference. But there is a possibility. And Rachel Jukes thought it was a really bad idea and explained why. What is Rebecca Davis's view? I agree with Rachel Jukes. If this is something that the NC Women's League has been bringing out at regular intervals over the years, most recently in 2018, again, um, chemical castration for rapists, I think many of us find it intuitively appealing. I certainly do. I have no kind of, you know, empathetic basis for saying that rapists shouldn't be chemically castrated. It's just simply that as much as possible, we should be relying on evidence-based approaches to deal with gender-based violence. And there is no global evidence that it is a successful deterrent to rape. And there's also the problem, John, that, and I'm sure Rachel Jukes mentioned this as well, that rape is generally accepted now not to be about sex. The idea is not that rapists are so sexually aroused that they can't stop themselves raping. It is about power. So there is some evidence to suggest that rapists could go on to use other means of raping that I'm sure I don't have to explain in detail here. But if we say, let's castrate rapists, 
as if it's something akin to gun control, then we're suggesting, oh, you know, the problem lies in the genitalia. And obviously that is not the case. It's a much more complicated problem. And then also, John, there's the case of where chemical castration does happen, for instance, in places in the US where sometimes it is offered to paedophiles. It is in exchange for shortened jail terms. And I really wonder whether the people who would support chemical castration here would do so in exchange for a shorter jail term. Would you say, okay, I'm going to let you out of jail after two years, rapist, because you've been chemically castrated. Would people be okay with that? My suspicion is very much not, in which case it becomes purely about a kind of moral punitive thing, which, I mean, it's fine if that's the kind of society we want to live in, but it's not the one that our constitution is founded on. And then, Rebecca, I wasn't aware until I opened the link that you sent me earlier today about the Saudi Arabian proposal to build what it calls a linear mega city. I mean, it's 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 mind altering to to try and conceive imaginatively of what they are thinking about. It, I'm kind of obsessed with this, John, ever since I saw it, because and I think we're both going to run into the problem that it's very hard to explain exactly what this is. So I would encourage listeners, as long as you're not driving when you can to Google the line in Saudi Arabia. What this basically is, is that Saudi Arabia is building a new mega city for 9 million people. So far, so boring. Lots of places do this. The difference here is that the line is going to be in the shape of a very thin rectangle. So it's going to be 100 miles long in the desert, but only 200 meters wide, which is about the length of what, two football pitches, John, something around that? So it's effectively like a very long train carriage, sort of. I mean, I'm exaggerating the the thinness of it, but it is going to be very much longer than it is wide. And the idea is that it's going to be car-free. There's going to be a regulated microclimate. It has been described as the Death Star with hanging gardens. I'm, I, I mean, I love the idea of a you know an incredibly climate-friendly, um, carbon-neutral, emissions-low, you know, urban planning development, John. But I have to say that the thought of living in a structure like that strikes me as unbelievably claustrophobic. And I wonder what they're planning to do about that issue. Do you get the same impression? Yeah, I mean, you know, have all my daily needs reachable within a five-minute walk, having access to other perks, outdoor skiing facilities, a high-speed rail with end-to-end transit of 20 minutes to do the 100 miles so I can visit my auntie that I've bought an apartment for right at the other end of the line. No, I don't, I don't like it. I mean, I, I could not conceive of living in an environment like that. Imagine... Imagine how often you'd b- bump into everyone you hate when it's only 200 <laughs> I hate wide. nobody, Rebecca. I love everybody. <laughs> A likely story, John. <laughs> mostly I love you and mostly I love our 10 minutes or so on the radio every Thursday. Rebecca Davis, another Plan B next week.